chapter 18, and we are closing in on the end of our study in the book of Joshua. We have just a few messages left as we finish out this great book. And we're in the last section of the book that deals not with wars and fightings and all the things that were going on in the first part of the book. We don't see anything in the last part here, any tales of carnage. There are no battle scenes. But rather, we find the people of Israel settling into the land of Canaan. The land is ready to be divided. The inheritance of each of the tribes of Israel is to be assigned to them, and every tribe would settle into their different territories. God had granted great victories to Israel in overcoming this land. All of the major enemies by now have been conquered, and all that remains are just the smaller pockets of resistance, and each tribe was responsible individually to drive out the rest of the Canaanites that were in those parts of the country. So basically now, at this point, the land is theirs, and all the great military campaigns are over. Well, here in the beginning of chapter 18... Uh, Part of the land is still yet to be divided among the people. And uh, there are still some portions that need to be assigned. But the narrative stops here in chapter 18. Everything settles down for just a little bit as the people get ready to set up the permanent place where the tabernacle would be located. Now, as we know, uh, you should know, at least uh, from our studies in the tabernacle in previous times, that the tabernacle was a tent that Israel used to take with them as they traveled And they set up this tent and they worshiped the Lord there and made their sacrifices. Two years ago, we did a very extensive study on the tabernacle. And at that time, we learned that the tabernacle is actually the Old Testament's most complete picture of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And particularly, everything in the tabernacle spoke about Jehovah God and had some connection to how redemption would come for God's people. Now, tonight we're going to talk for just a few minutes about the significance of setting up this temple in this place called Shiloh. So I'd like you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. And we're just going to look here tonight at the first three verses of Joshua chapter 18. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And we just ask you, Lord, to open our hearts that we might learn something uh, from this great book of Joshua, this 18th chapter, as we think about the tabernacle being set up in this wonderful place called Shiloh. Blessing the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 1 of this 18th chapter records that Israel assembled together at Shiloh to set up the tabernacle. Shiloh is located about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And when the children of Israel set up the tabernacle there, this would be the spot where the tabernacle would stay for many, many years after this. In fact, for centuries, Moses had given Israel the plan for the tabernacle uh, approximately 50 years or so prior to this time. And as Israel wandered about in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they took down and set up this tabernacle over and over again as they traveled throughout the wilderness. But now here they are, they're ready to settle in the land, 
And so the tabernacle doesn't need to be moved from place to place any longer. And so they choose a permanent place, a permanent location to set up the tabernacle. And Shiloh is this place that was chosen. And as I've said a moment ago, here is where it remained until the time of Samuel. Well, Shiloh was a great location because it was central to all the tribes of Israel. So they could very easily get to this place from their different areas of inheritance. Uh, when Israel first came into the land, they set up the tabernacle at Gilgal, and that was just across the Jordan River, and that was a difficult place for most of the people to reach. So this is a much better location for the people to come and to worship. Well, tonight we're going to talk about Shiloh. And I want you to notice first that as they set up the tabernacle there, that this was the place for sanctuary. It was a place for sanctuary. When God first gave Moses the instructions about where to build the tabernacle and how to do that, he told them uh, the exact location where this tabernacle was to be among the children of Israel. And you may remember the uh, picture that we have on the screen now, which is uh, showing us that, the, that as the tab- tabernacle was in the wilderness, that it was to be in the central, uh, the central area of all the tribes. They encamped all the way around the tabernacle, and, and the tabernacle was in a central location at that time wherever they camped. And that was to show them that God was to be central among them. God is to be the very center of their lives. Always God is to have the most prominent place in their lives. And so God says, set up this temple, or set up this tabernacle rather, in the midst of the camp, in the center of it, so you'll know that I'm to be the center of your lives. Well, we often uh, tend to make God the center of our lives, or we might, so to speak, use God many times when we're in trouble. When we have problems in our lives, then we have a tendency at that time to make God the central part of our life. But when our troubles are over and and the, the difficulties are gone from us, what we do is we push God off on the side of our lives, and now God is on the fringe. He's no longer central to all that we do. Well, Joshua knew that Israel would be tempted to do the same. Certainly, they needed God as they were fighting their battles. God had to be the center of their lives now. And so they would come and they would, they would make sacrifices. They would come to the tabernacle as they should. Whenever it was impossible for them to defeat their enemies without God, then, of course, God is always central in their lives. But Joshua knew that now that the land is at rest and the fighting has stopped, then Israel would be tempted to neglect their worship of God. And so Joshua didn't want that to happen. So he called the people together, and they moved the tabernacle to a central location. And again, that was to remind them that worship to God is always paramount. God is to be the center of our lives. Shiloh was a place of sanctuary. It was a place of rest. And it symbolized that God had given rest to his people. Before, they were wondering, they were fighting, they were trying to conquer the land, but now they're ready for rest. And I've told you many times before that Canaan, the conquest of Canaan, is a picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of how we go through this life and we have to fight spiritual battles. But the wonderful thing about this is that one day all enemies will be subdued. We won't have to fight any longer. And then we will also find our place of rest. And our rest will be permanently in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I believe that There are at least three reasons that we can look at tonight to to see why Israel needed this place of sanctuary uh, at Shiloh. First of all, I think we can see that it memorialized God's work in the past. As these workmen 
set up this tabernacle for the last time, I think that this was a time for them to reflect upon how they had done this so many times in the past. And they must have thought about this as they, as they began to set down the silver sockets that held those golden boards in place that made the framework of the tabernacle. They must have thought about that as they, as they put that down and they began to uh, spread the coverings over the tabernacle. Four coverings went over it. There was the fine twine linen, the goat's hair, the ram skins dyed red, badger skins. These were all placed over the tabernacle structure. And as they put the furniture in place here for the last time, they must have thought about the numerous times that they had to do this before. Their minds must have gone back to the time that they set up the tabernacle for the very first time. And that's when God came and descended upon that place in a cloud. And there God stood over the Holy of Holies. And they must have thought about those vivid scenes often as they marched through the wilderness. And they must have pictured in their minds about the times even of shame that they had when their fathers forsook the Lord God, when they complained, and then God had to deal harshly with them. But they also must have thought of times when there was renewal and when there was refreshing and when they knew that God was taking care of them, such as when God gave them the manna to eat and God gave them the water that came from the rock. And so they must have thought about the revivals that they had under the Lord God as he he conquered their enemies. And then they must have also thought as they set this up for the last time about the thousands of sacrifices that were made in the wilderness, the blood that flowed from that place. And then their minds, I think, were probably captivated as they thought about the Ark of the Covenant and how that Ark went before them as the priests carried it and stepped their feet down into the waters of the Jordan. And when those priests uh, touched the waters, they parted. And then Israel was able to cross the Jordan River on dry ground. So this is a reminder as they set it up for the last time of what God had done for them in the past. Here is the God that they worship and revere. You know, as I think about this place where we worship, that there are many things in here that are a reminder of what God has done in the past. There are a lot of great memories that have taken place in this building. Some of them are tough, and some of them maybe we don't like to think about so much, but there are many good memories and many sweet memories that will really bring a smile to our face. I remember walking in here on a Sunday morning about three years ago now, And the men of the church were mopping up water that was on the floor and and trying to get this place, uh, desperately trying to get this place ready for worship. The baptistry had overflowed. And we had a mess in this place. And that's a painful memory. Look back over at that baptistry and think, there's the thing that caused all the problem. The baptistry overflows and wreaked havoc on the church for months. We had to replace all the carpet, the sound system. Uh, we had to you know, do a lot of work in here. And for months and months, we dealt with the issues of that baptistry overflowing. But you know, I can also look over at this baptistry, and I can think about all the good things that have happened there. And I can think about, over the past five years, how we've taken more than 100 people through that baptistry people that have had their hearts right with God, and people who had received Christ as the Savior, people whose lives had been changed because of the work that we do in Berean Baptist Church. And so I can see the baptistry overflowing and causing problems, but I also seeing a baptistry overflowing with the blessings of God that we've experienced here. I remember, I remember some of those baptisms. Uh, I remember uh, Robert Barkmeyer when we baptized him, and uh, Robert, he got baptized, and then right behind him, he, he has to step up there and get Brent Knipe. 
And Brent, of course, is crippled. Uh, he, no, no way that he could walk down into the baptistry. And the, uh, Robert took Brent and hoisted up, him up on his back and brought him down into the baptistry so we could, so we could uh, baptize him. And I think about that. That was a day that was just overflowing with joy. I remember when we baptized Lene Zamacona. And uh, Lene was terribly afraid of the water. So we got her into the baptistry and everybody's waiting to baptize her and she just would not go down. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't mean I couldn't get her down. I mean, I, she wouldn't come down into the water at all. She wouldn't hardly set foot into the water. So I stayed here for two hours after church on Sunday morning trying to convince her. I was wearing those waders all afternoon trying to convince her that she needed to get down into the water. And of course, finally, we were able to do that and she was baptized. There's lots of good memories that we can think about from the place that we worship. I think about the baby dedications that we've made here. And we've seen lots of young children now that have grown up. And some of them, you know, although I've only been the pastor for five years, yet some of those children that I first dedicated have now received Christ as their Savior. And they are baptized as well. So we thank the Lord for all the wonderful memories that he brings here. And I think about all the dedicated men and women how, how, how much time has been spent in, in just doing things in the church. Everybody that just pitches in, uh, painting walls and cleaning floors. I think about Brother Grant Evans and Les Crandall who lend their expertise to the framework and uh, the trim work that we've done around here and building walls in the church. It is just a marvelous thing to think about what God has done in the past. So those are good memories. And even the ones that are bad... Uh, they still remind us that we serve a great God and He always works out things for good. And it never he, He's always in control of things. He always does things after the counsel of His will. So even the hard times, they do work out best for us. So setting up the tabernacle at Shiloh was something that memorialized God's work in the past. But also it recognized God's presence in the present. And the tabernacle at Shiloh said God is still with them. The purpose of God giving the tabernacle was so the children of Israel would have a visible manifestation that God was with them. Well, we know that God is a spirit. We can't actually see God. And God can't be made into the idols like the Egyptians had and like the Canaanites worship. God is a spirit. You can't see him. So how do you know that God is here? Well, God gave them the tabernacle as a point of reference. And this was something that told them that God's presence was with them. Now, interestingly enough, when the tabernacle was gone, and later when the temple had become a place where uh, it was vested with human traditions, and the people had gone away from the one true God, God decided that he would send another tabernacle to be among the people. And we read about this in John chapter 1, verse number 14, where it tells us, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Those words, dwelt among us, literally, that translates into pitched His tent or tabernacled among us. And what that means is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself was God's tabernacle. He's the manifestation. He's the visible picture of God himself. The angel said, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And so this is what Jesus Christ was. He was God with us. 
And so when Israel put up the tabernacle at Shiloh, they said, God is still with us. And they recognized that right then, right at that moment, God was with them. But that's not all this place of sanctuary was. It also prophesied of Israel's better future. Now, although that the tabernacle was a resting place, or now it's put into a more permanent place, yet the tabernacle is still just a tent. And a tent is not intended to be a permanent dwelling place. The writer of Hebrews talks about Abraham, and he says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, that means in tents, the heirs of him of the same promise. Abraham was living in a strange country, living in a tent, And so he kept traveling, he kept searching. The Bible says that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Well, the tabernacle at best was just a tent. About 600 years after this, God gave Israel a more permanent place. He gave them the temple. Solomon built the temple, and that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But that temple also passed away. That temple was destroyed. But do you know what the tabernacle and the temple signified? Again, the book of Hebrews gives us the answer to this. Moses' tabernacle was actually built after the pattern of a heavenly temple. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 9, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Of course, the holy place in heaven is where Christ took his own blood. Then the writer goes on, he says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Is there a temple in heaven? Well, actually there is, but it's not a temple that you would expect, and not the kind of temple that you would expect. John saw this, and in Revelation chapter 21 he said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Then he goes on and he says, And I saw no temple therein. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And so Jesus, the tabernacle that dwelt among us when he came in the flesh, he is actually also the temple of God in heaven. And so when they put up this temple, this tabernacle at Shiloh, it looked towards the future and it spoke about the everlasting Christ, the one who will become the eternal dwelling place for the people of God. And so this was a wonderful place of sanctuary. Then next, the tabernacle at Shiloh was a place for sacrifice. If you were to walk into the temple enclosure, the first thing that you would pass as you went through the the gate into the tabernacle area is that you would see a, a, a brazen altar. The first visual reference that you have passing through those gates is a brazen altar, and this is called the altar of the burnt offering. The word altar means to lift up, and this altar that the children of Israel brought their sacrifices to was a picture of the altar on which Christ would be lifted up. And the place where Jesus was lifted up was on the cross. 
The cross became his altar. And so as you walked into the temple enclosure, the first thing that you see is that altar. You can't get in. You can't get in without stepping around all the way around that altar. Now that tells us something. And God placed the altar at the entrance to the tabernacle for a very specific purpose. And that was to tell us that there is no entrance into this place without sacrifice. God says, you cannot approach me, you can't come near me, unless you come with a sacrifice. Well, this might seem odd to you, but the altar was both a barrier to God, and at the same time, it was the way that you came to God. It was both. It was a barrier because God says, there is no entrance without a sacrifice. And did you know that God is saying the very same thing today? He says, no entrance. You can't come to me. You can't come and be with me unless you come by a sacrifice. In other words, God is saying, if you don't receive the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that means you can have no relationship with me. Now, in this time that we're living in, in a world where religious pluralism seems to rule, people will say that there are many paths to God. And they may tell you, well, if you want to go to God by Jesus Christ, that's fine. Uh, Jesus Christ is your way to God, but he's not my way to God. There are other ways that I can come to God. And so you have people who say, well, I'll choose the path of Islam. I'll go through Muhammad. Some say, well, I'll go through Buddha. That will be my path to God. And you have people that all different kinds of ways they think, well, I don't have to come by Jesus Christ. I can come in my own way and then God will accept me. But God says, "Uh uh-uh, no way. He says, you are not coming here except you come one way. You have to come through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so you can let the politicians pray their generic prayers that include all faiths and offend no persons. But Jesus says, and God says, you must come by him. You must come by that sacrifice. And so the, the, the brazen altar, as well as the cross, was a barrier to God. But it's also, as I said, the way that you come to God. The cross is the way by which admittance is gained. And so when you see Jesus Christ on that cross and you believe that he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins, when you accept the sacrifice of God by faith, then God says you're welcome. You're admitted. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Altar means to lift up, and that's what Jesus said. He said, if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. So the tabernacle is the place of Israel's admission to God. That's the only way that they can come to God, and they have to come to him through the sacrifice Then secondly, we also see that there was no identity without a sacrifice. And what I mean is that Israel had to bring a personal sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that is made for that individual. And so to identify with God, this means that there must be personal belief. That this sacrifice was specifically made for this person's atonement. And you must believe Christ's sacrifice was for me. And that's what God is still demanding. When you come to him, you have to understand that Christ is a personal sacrifice. He is your redeemer. No one else can believe for you. Nothing else that anyone does can avail for you. It won't bring you to God. So you can't come to to God on the basis of another sacrifice or upon anyone's merits. 
You go to heaven because of the personal sacrifice of Jesus Christ and your own belief in that sacrifice. And so it's Christ merit and it's Christ worthiness and none other that identifies us with God. And friends, I want you to understand that the sacrifice of Christ is not indiscriminate. Christ did not die in hopes that maybe someone would believe in him. He is a personal savior and he gave his life for a particular people and he infallibly brings those people to him, to the Father. So Israel never made sacrifices for Canaanites, and neither did Jesus make a sacrifice for those who won't come to him and for people who will not believe in him. We are identified as God's people because Christ came to die for those who would believe in him. He is never, in any sense, a hypothetical savior for anyone. So the tabernacle is placed at Shiloh because here is a place of sanctuary, and it's also a place of sacrifice. But then thirdly, we see that it is the place for service. I believe as Israel set up this tabernacle for this very last time, that that told them that God was not through with them yet. And so it memorialized the the past association that they had with God. It was recognition that God was with them in the present. It was prophecy of a glorious future for Israel. But they could look at this tabernacle and they could see that their service to God is not yet done. They're not finished with God yet, as neither God finished with them. There will be more sacrifices made. Thousands upon thousands of sacrifices were made through this whole period of Israel's history, all the way until the time that Jesus came. And do you know that the Bible teaches us again that we will have rest when we get to heaven, but when we get to heaven, the service won't be done, because the Scripture also tells us that forever... We will worship God around the throne. We'll be praising and worshiping Him. Our service to God will never be over. I think of a a lot of Christians, uh, they aren't yet very well suited for heaven. I hear people say, you know, over there at Brian Baptist Church, they just sing too many songs. Always singing all the time. And you know I've heard people say, that preacher over there, he just preaches too long. There's a lot of people that won't be fit for heaven until there's some changes made. There's going to be a lot of singing in heaven. There's going to be a lot of worshiping in heaven. There's going to be a lot of talk about what God has done for us, and we're going to worship him around the throne. But let's take it back here for just a moment and talk about the service as it relates to Israel. Evidently, what the people had done, they had become complacent in this interlude that they have after the battles are done. And so we see, first of all, that they were satisfied with their achievement. And this is the reason why I had us read three verses here in Joshua. If you'll look at verse number three, Joshua has a complaint against the people. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? Now some of the tribes had already received their inheritance, but there were seven tribes who had not yet received an inheritance. And Joshua complains against them, not because they have received the inheritance, but they haven't yet moved into that inheritance. That's not his complaint. His complaint really here is that they haven't even yet asked for their inheritance. It seems like they really don't even care. His complaint is that you have become complacent. All you're doing is milling around on land that doesn't belong to you, and you are content to live off the spoils of the land and to have a good time. And so you've come this far, but you're not yet ready to go further. They had decided to sit down there, and they haven't even asked Joshua for the inheritance of the land yet. And you know there are a lot of Christians like that. They have come so far, 
but they're not ready to go any further. They got saved. I mean, they got the eternal salvation, that question taken care of. They got the hellfire and the the brimstone problems. They got that all taken care of. And so now they're content to sit down and and just do whatever they're going to do. They say, I can't lose my salvation, and, and so I'm set. I don't need to go any further. I hope there's nobody here that thinks that way. What you don't realize is that heaven is just one of the benefits that we get from salvation. It's a wonderful benefit to be sure, but heaven is yet future. But the Bible teaches us that God has saved us for right now. Our eternal life begins now, and God already has something for us right in this life that he wants us to receive. And if you don't enter into that inheritance that God gives you in your salvation right now, you don't have peace, there is no contentment, and you'll lose the joy of your Christian life. And so maybe you haven't taken that next step in your Christian life because you're just content where you are. You won't be a spiritual giant. You won't do great things for God because you become complacent. And so you have the bad habits that you still are accustomed to doing. You have the sins that are pet sins to you and you want to continue in those sins. You know that you're on your way to heaven. You can't lose your salvation. And so you think, well, whatever sin that I commit now, that's really no big deal. And this is exactly Joshua's complaint. He says, you are complacent when God just has so much for you. You have your own land, you have an inheritance, and yet here you are, you're whiling away your time on trivial pursuits. Jesus says that right now, we ought to be laying up treasure in heaven. And so, as Christians, what we ought to do with our lives, we ought to be building in our lives out of gold and silver and precious stones. But instead, I'm afraid that we haven't yet realized God's best for our lives. As individuals, we need to change some things so that we do receive God's best. And I would also say that as a church, we most definitely ought not to look back at past accomplishments. If we do that, this church is going to wither on the vine. We're going to dry up. We have got to keep pressing on. We've got to keep going towards our goal. So they were slack in their achievement And then also they were slack with their commitment. Do you know why there's still so much more of the land to be possessed? Because the commitment was not there. And here we are, and we wonder why is it that there are so many areas of our city that have not yet been reached for Christ? Why are there areas of our state and of our country and areas in the world where the gospel has yet to be preached? It's because most Christians are slack in their commitment. Everything else has taken God's place in our lives. And so instead of, like the tabernacle being in the very center of Israel, what we put in the center is me. I, I'm in the center of everything. And everything else that I want to do, that has actually become my God. I'm no longer worshiping Jehovah God. I'm worshiping myself and what I want to do. And so my job becomes my God. Property becomes my God. Recreation is my God. Family can't even become your God if you let it. But I believe what Jesus says. He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things is he talking about? Whatever you need in your life, whatever you need for joy, whatever it is that you need for happiness, you'll never be a successful, happy Christian if you are lukewarm or even cold in your commitment. So Joshua wanted these people to get up Get busy again. Get out there and get something done. Go possess your land. Quit being a slacker. 
And I think that those are some good lessons that we learn from Israel setting up the tabernacle at Shiloh. But I need to bring the message to a close now. And I want to just relate to you one other, one other wonderful thing about Shiloh. Shiloh is a name for the Messiah. I just love the name Shiloh. I've always loved the sound of that. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 49, if you would, please. Genesis 49, way back before Israel went into bondage in Egypt, when they were still living under the favor of the Pharaoh because of Joseph, Jacob's father, who was, or Joseph's father, I should say, who was the, of course, the father of all the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, he was about to die. But before he died, it was a time to pronounce a blessing upon his sons and to give a prediction about their future. And so one by one, Jacob called all of his sons to him, and he gave each of his sons a blessing. Now, in some cases, of course, it wasn't a, much of a blessing for, the, for some of those boys. But he did come to Judah, his son Judah, and he said something very special to him. This is in Genesis 49, verse number 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is just another way of naming the Messiah. So Jacob said, the kings will come out of Judah. The tribe of kings will be Judah. The scepter, kingship, shall not depart from Judah until one comes who is the everlasting king. There will be one king who will come. He will be the king of kings, and he will set up an everlasting kingdom. And, of course, his name is Jesus Christ. The Bible calls him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Isaiah spoke of him and called him wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's called Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's called the Lamb of God and the light of the world. He's called the Holy One and the hope of glory. Actually, there are over 100 names that are given in Scripture that describe the Lord Jesus Christ. But the one that I like, I mean, I think all of them are great. I love them all. But the one that I really like is the name Shiloh. For some reason, I've just always loved that name. So he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's Shiloh. Shiloh means tranquil. It means security. And so when Israel set up the tabernacle at Shiloh, they said, this place is tranquil. This is a place of peace. We have security here, and now we're at rest. And I want to ask you tonight, is that how you feel in your Christian life? Are you at peace with God? Do you have security with Jesus in such a troubled world? Think about that tonight. Then think about this place. Think about this place where we worship, this house of worship. I consider this place to be a place of peace. It's a place where I find comfort and I find security from all that goes on out there in the rest of the world. So I love Shiloh. I love this place of worship. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that each and every one of you love him as well. He is Shiloh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what we learn from this great passage of Scripture. As we think about... Jesus Christ coming into the world, the Messiah. He is our Shiloh, our our safety, our peace, our security, and we thank you for him. Lord, we just pray that there's someone here tonight who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would recognize who you really are, that you are the one by we the one who we must come through to get to God. So we just ask you, Lord, speak to our hearts tonight. As Christians, if uh, for people that hear that are saved, revive us. 
And help us to remember all the things that you've done for us. Help us to praise you for what happens in the present. And then, Lord, to look for a glorious future in which we'll serve you in heaven. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.